a number of years ago, there was a man in Dallas named Fred Smith Sr., and Fred was kind of a force of nature in the Dallas business community. He had had a distinguished career. He was crusty. He was interesting, but he was always entertaining. He told me one time, Wildman, you need to understand that small organizations are built on the great effort of individuals. But as organizations get bigger, they become dependent on their great systems. And as I've thought about that, it's true in the local church, it's true in businesses, it's true in countries, that early on when something is just starting, it is the incredible commitment and effort of individuals that make it effective. And, and then as time goes on, it institutes these systems, these way of doing things that ensure that that, that mark that was initially placed continues on. That's true in all kinds of arenas. When a church begins, it is a few committed believers who just put their bow back to the bow, and, and I don't know what I'm saying, they push real hard. And, and, and in the result of, the, you know, whether it's putting up chairs to worship in a school or a, a car dealership or, or the, it's just the early days of a church. Individuals work really hard. And then over time, they develop systems of leadership and service that help ensure. And it, it's, it's a fact that both are true. But I'm struck as we've been looking at the book of Acts that we often forget that there were a few people who fundamentally shape the beginning of the church. Obviously, the body of Christ is the body of Christ. It's the Lord Himself and the power of the Holy Spirit that built the church. But He used individuals to do remarkable things. And when we think of that, we always think, obviously, of the Lord Himself who gave His life for the church. But then the 12 apostles after um, the one, Judas failed. And then especially Peter, who was the mouth of the disciples, the, the great front uh, leader of the apostles. And then, of course, you think of Paul who took the message literally into all the Western world and reshaped the world in which we know. Those are the people you always think of who, whom God used to build the church. But I'm going to argue today and next week that none is more significant in many ways than the guy we're studying, Barnab- uh, whose name is Barnabas. Although he's only referred to in a very few passages His role is foundational to the growth of the church. And the amazing thing about Barnabas is that that he had this role with doing things that in many ways seem fairly normal. They just don't seem as great as they might appear to be, and therefore it's easy to overlook him. If you will, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, and we're going to go through a lot of passages and looking at this trait of Barnabas that made him so significant. Um, The point you'll see today is that Barnabas believed the grace of God so deeply, so completely, that he believed it on behalf of other people in what God could do in the lives of others. Um, first of all, he, he trusted in the power of God's grace. Acts chapter 9, uh, we see Saul. Saul first appears in Scripture in the book of Acts when the, during the stoning of Stephen. The book writer Luke says that uh, all of the men threw their coats at Saul's feet while they 
stoned Stephen, and Saul gave complete agreement with the killing of this early church leader. Now he reappears in verse 1 of chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus of Syria so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, the early Christian movement, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul had, had been the greatest persecutor of the early church up to this time. He was a significant Christian leader, a Pharisee, having studied in the University of Gamaliel. He was powerful by his words and his strength of character, and he had personally committed himself to wipe out this sect, these people who had taken Judaism and, in his opinion, perverted it with this worshiping of Jesus, whom they claimed was the Messiah. And he persecuted the church in Jerusalem, and that didn't feel good enough, so he moved out to persecute the church in Samaria as well. And on his way to Damascus, the Lord Jesus himself appears to him in a blinding light, blinds him, and the Lord says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? In the most dramatic conversion experience possibly in all of Scripture, God himself reaches down and takes this angry, venomous, hateful man who had done more damage to the cause of Christ than anyone else and said, I have a plan for your life. In fact, if you skip on down to verse uh, 16, it said, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. God from the very beginning had determined that he was going to use Saul uniquely to take the message of the gospel to the rulers of the world as well as the people of the Gentiles and the Jews. So God says to Ananias, not to be confused with one married to Sapphira, God says to this man, I want you to go because you're going to go find Saul. He has been turned to me. Ananias says, oh, whoa, Lord, heard about him. Send somebody else. Don't have any interest in going to him. He's brutal. He's mean. He's venomous. He's powerful. I don't want to go tell him about Jesus. I don't want anything to do with him. And the Lord says, no, I have chosen him specifically for a significant purpose. So skipping on down to verse 26. No, let's start earlier. Um, stay in verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. I'm struggling because I went too long in the first service because I read too much Scripture. I'm trying to figure out how to read less and still get through it all, and now I've wasted 15 seconds telling you that. <laughs> but the Lord said, go, this man is my chosen instrument. Verse 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And Ananias went to the house and entered it, and placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. And he got up when he was baptized and after taking some food he regained his strength and he spent several days 
with the disciples in Damascus. And at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. As a result of Saul's preaching, the the Jews there decided they better get rid of him and they have to sneak Saul out of town. Verse 26, he, he goes to Jerusalem. And when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him because they didn't believe that he was really a disciple. And who can blame them? This is the angriest, meanest dude in the first century who had made it, used his considerable power and strength of character and gifts to destroy this Jewish sect. Because in the early days, Christianity was viewed as just a segment of Judaism. And and now he shows up in Jerusalem and say, yo, I'm one of you. And even the apostles say, we don't think so. We don't trust that the grace of God could really change you. Can I suggest to you that in some ways it's harder to believe that God's grace can change other people than it is to believe that God might change us? That sometimes we don't share the gospel with other people because we think, well, you know, I just don't think the gospel could change them. Uh, that that we, we hide behind our own fears as an excuse not to believe in the power of God's grace in someone else's life. And what you will see with Barnabas time and time again is that fool believed the gospel. He really believed this stuff, that God's grace was so powerful, that the Holy Spirit is so incredible that even someone like Saul could be used by God, could be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit through the use of the Word. He really believed it's true. So look what happens. Verse 27, Barnabas took him in. And he brought him to the apostles, and he told them how Saul on the journey had seen the Lord, and the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. And he talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. And when the believers learned of this, they took him to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Now, Barnabas, as far as we know, was not with Saul on the road to Damascus. Barnabas just believed that it was true. And he was so convinced of the powerful of the gospel, he really believed that God could change even Saul. Which begs the question, do we believe the gospel is that powerful? See, one of the reasons we don't forgive people that offend us is we just don't believe God's grace is big enough for them. But if Jesus forgave them, maybe, maybe, perhaps we might forgive them too. We, we, we shrink grace so that it fits very comfortable to us, but God's grace is frighteningly large and powerful, and God's grace can change any human heart that submits to the story of who Jesus is and what he's done. And as we trace Barnabas, even though he didn't write any scriptures, although Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, believed he wrote the book of Hebrews, although he didn't 
may not have written any scripture, although they're not evidence that he had the kind of visible ministry that Paul did. I'll argue that because of his belief in people and because he believed in them so much, he risked his own seriously powerful reputation on them. See, if, if just anybody had said, I believe Saul, it wouldn't have been so powerful. But the fact was that Barnabas was one of the most powerful men in the church as it existed at that point. In fact, later on in the book of Acts, he's referred to as an apostle. Uh, Barnabas was a force to be reckoned with, and when he, a man of his stature, gave his reputation to Paul, when, when he placed his stake in the ground on Paul's behalf, Suddenly, Paul had the ability to move and act in a way they'd never done before. Barnabas had this nasty habit of believing that the grace of God could change anyone, even Saul. Which begs the question, are the people we've written off? especially those that have hurt us or offend us that we fear? Are there people in our lives that we've given up hope that God's grace can change them? Uh, by the way, I know that all of us can develop a cynicism when we see other people who claim to be Christians fail desperately. I understand that that can limit our confidence in God's grace. But hear me, when, when someone who claims to be a believer doesn't follow in line with that, that is, that is not the failure of the gospel. That is the failure of their obedience. The reality is that when someone submits to the message of the Son of God dying on the cross for the sins of the world, when someone receives the Spirit and their dead human soul is made live again, when someone is embraced and, re and reconciled to the very God of the universe, they open a potential for change that is like nothing else in the world. And we dare not limit His grace by not trusting it. So first thing I want you to see about Barnabas here is how he believed in Saul in spite of of Saul's threat. Next, I want you to see how Barnabas believed in the gospel so much it overcame his prejudice. Um, chapter 11. Now, those who had been, verse uh, 19, probably help if I told you. But now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord, and news of this reached the church in Jerusalem. Did you get that? Gentiles are becoming Christians. We thought this was a Jewish thing. Let's send off for Peter, for crying out loud. This is disturbing. This is the most significant story and fact in the book of Acts. 
Because the act, book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles describes how Christianity started out as something totally in the arms of Jewish Judaism, totally a function of the Jewish faith and people. And the book of Acts describes how God used people like Barnabas and the Holy Spirit to take that message and set a demolition of all of their understanding because the gospel went out to all people. And it begins here. Because some folks went to Antioch and told Greek-speaking people about Jesus, and they believed. And there was panic in the streets. Why? Those of us who are Gentile, the Hebrew word is goyim. I like that word. Those of us who are goyim have no comprehension of what centuries and centuries of persecution does to the Jewish mindset. A number of years ago, I sat down with a rabbi, Rabbi David. He was introduced to me by a young man at Grace. And Rabbi David and I had lunch in a, a little deli up in North Dallas, and we, we, I was the only goyim there, let me tell you. It was, in fact, Rabbi David specializes in declaring food kosher and in circumcisions. Different job description, I respect it. And we had a wonderful, wonderful lunch. But about five minutes into it, he looked me straight in the eyes and said, why do you Christians hate us so much? Why do, you, why do you hate us so much? You know, my first thought is, I don't hate you, man. Why, why would you even say that? But then you look at history, and how could they not wonder why people who claim to be Christian hate them so much? The persecution of the Jews is one of the most consistent stories throughout all of human history. In fact, when Martin Luther was asked how, why, how he could plead, uh, argue that the Bible is true, he had two-word answer, the Jews. The very fact that the Jews still exist is a testimony to the fact of God's promise to them because everyone in the world seems to try to wipe them out. As a Jew, as a Hebrew, as an Israelite, Barnabas would have had huge fear and prejudice toward the Gentiles because of how much they had done. And now the, uh, there's this activity of people coming to faith in, in Antioch who aren't Jewish, and the, the apostles are so disturbed, they say, we got to send someone down there, up there and see what's going on here, because that wasn't, that wasn't our plan. Is there anybody that we have prejudice toward? Is, is it... There's a lot of press about all this, but has our prejudice bled over into our belief, the gospel's power? Not only here, but around the world. I wanna, let me give you a real current one. Uh, Syrian refugees. You know, in, in Europe, uh, you have these millions of Syrian refugees that have moved in. I am so proud of the evangelical church in Germany. You know what they decided? We're not going to be afraid of them. We're going to convert them. And there are stories all over Germany of churches blossoming in the refugee camps because the believers there have said, we've got an opportunity to change the world. You can choose prejudice or you can choose the gospel. 
here in America, do we allow prejudice to keep us from believing what the power of the gospel can do? I believe the early church did. They feared the idea of the gospel impacting the Gentile world. But Barnabas was crazy. He believed this stuff. He believed that the Lord could change hearts, even of those who had persecuted his people. And I would argue that he was one of the central characters whom God used to expand the idea of the church to include Gentiles. Verse 11, chapter 11, 22. Uh, the, the news reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived, he saw what the grace of God had done. Isn't that a great phrase? He saw what the grace of God had done. I used to pray that God would use me to do great things. Now I pray that I'll get to be there when God's grace does great things. I just, I just want to witness it. And he was glad. And he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. And wouldn't you love to have this written about you in Holy Scripture? He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Wow. He was a good man. Oh, he's a good man. Well, obviously, the Lord's grace had changed his own heart and shaped his own character, but in this context... He was a good man because he saw the potential in other people when they embraced God's grace. Verse 25, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. I think he remembered that when Saul was first met by Christ, God said, he will take my message to the Gentiles. So Gentiles are hearing about the gospel. Barnabas remembers. He goes and grabs Saul, Paul now, and brings him back. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people, and the disciples were called Christians for the first time there. And during that time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and through the Spirit predicted a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. It happened during the reign of Claudius, and the disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. And so this they did, sending the gift to the elders by Barnabas and Paul. They even trusted him with money. Chapter 13, verse 1, notice what it says. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiped the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed hands on them and sent them off on what we now call Paul's first missionary journey. And the two of them set on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. Barnabas's home, and when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God to the Jewish synagogues, and John was with them as their helper. Chapter 13, continue on down. They're in Pisidian Antioch, 
take it by faith. Verse 42, they have preached in the synagogue, and as Paul and Barnabas were leaving Pisidia and Antioch, and they were leaving the synagogue, and the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. And when the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. And on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and they began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. And then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first, since, but since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. This is one of the defining moments, not just in the history of Christianity, but in the history of the world, because Christianity no longer was a sect among Jews. It became a force in all the world. They said, for this was what the Lord commanded us. I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Barnabas was someone who uh, believed the grace of God so significantly it even overcame his prejudice. As a Jew, he feared the Gentile world, and with good reason. But, but see, he didn't allow that fear to keep him from believing what God could do even in the Gentile world. And we don't have time, I know because I did in the first service, to talk about Acts chapter 15, but it is Barnabas who will go and defend the work of God among the Gentiles at what we call the Jerusalem Council. And at the Jerusalem Council, the apostles declared that you don't have to become Jewish to believe in Jesus, that you don't have to submit to the Jewish laws. Instead, you can be fully Gentile and trust in Jesus. Because the gospel applies to all people. It's not limited by our prejudice, our fear, our differences. Real quickly, one third example of who Barnabas is. I, I mentioned in the first missionary journey when I read about it uh, that John Mark went with the apostles on the first missionary journey. And But later on, chapter 15, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Let's go on the second missionary journey. It'll make for great Bible maps, Paul said, because every Bible has Bible maps of Paul's missionary journeys. And he, he knew that, and so he said, let's go back. Let, let's go again to Barnabas. And something really odd happens. Verse 37. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with him, but Paul didn't think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in their work. That refers to chapter 13, verse 15, I think. I can't read it. Um, you'll get old, too. Verse 39, Paul and Barnabas had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. 
But Paul chose Silas and left and commanded by the believers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Barnabas has this nasty habit of believing in God's grace in people's lives, so much so that he believed it more than Paul. You know, uh, Paul was that task guy. It was all about the task for Paul. I mean, he loved people, but he was a task guy. He, he, he wasn't near as relational as Barnabas. Barnabas was the people guy of the two. And, and because uh, Paul saw this task that we've got to go do this work among the churches, we can't worry with Barnabas. He let us down once, and, and God used Paul mightily. He chose Silas to go with him again, and they made the second missionary journey, and it was a great success. And like I said, it's in the back of your Bible. Just check it out. But Barnabas, Barnabas had this unique ministry of just believing the grace of God in people's lives. And John Mark had failed them. John Mark had proven that he was not yet a dependable person. He wasn't someone you could count on. But Barnabas just believed that God's grace wasn't through with him. So he grabbed hold of John Mark, and they made their own journey together. And so you know how it turns out. Let me read you a verse from 2 Timothy. Chapter 4, verse 11. The Apostle Paul is writing at the end of his ministry, and he says, only Luke is here with me. But bring Mark, because he's helpful to me in my ministry. Barnabas was right. Because Barnabas had this nasty habit of believing the gospel so deeply that he believed that God could work in anybody. And he's not talked about that much in the book of Acts, but he is the key figure in turning the attention of the church to the Gentiles. And he is the key figure in believing in Paul when everyone else was afraid of him. And he just continued doing that even with John Mark, who was an immature punk who walked out when things got difficult because he believed the gospel so much, he not only believed it for his own life, he believed it for other people. And that belief so drove his actions that I suspect when we get to heaven, we'll find there's a whole litany of people that when asked who shaped their lives apart from Christ, they'll refer to the son of encouragement, Barnabas. Let me ask you a question. Who, who, who are you believing into? For whom do you believe the gospel is so powerful that with some attention, it can reshape them into something special. That's what church is supposed to be about, a community of believers that not only worship God, but then believe the gospel not only in our own lives, but believe it into the life of others. Uh, investing in others, even people about whom we have prejudice, even people about for the, whom we fear, or even people who have, God forbid, failed. See, either the gospel is true and can do miracles in anyone's life, or it's not true at all. Do you believe it? 
for yourself? Have you given up hope that God can really shape you? Do you believe it in others? Even people you don't really like. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we struggle with belief. We're like the man who said, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. And we particularly lose hope in believing that your gospel can change some people. Father, forgive our lack of faith. Forgive our lack of love. Forgive our lack of courage to go into the world and proclaim the good news and believing that God can shape anyone. Lord, I pray that we would believe it so deeply that it would become a part of our lives. In Christ's name, amen.